0: The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. You guys can have a seat. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, the, the thought that at this very moment, that anthem, Holy, 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 is being sung in your presence. <laughs> as as the cherubim are flying around the throne as they are describing who you are in a, in a manner that we can not fully comprehend definitely this side of heaven maybe not even in, in the next your holiness is something that is is mind blowing it is incomprehensible it's difficult to describe and yet as your creatures, you have given us the opportunity to try, and Lord, so we can we can sit here this side of heaven and know that our Father, our God, our Creator is holy, holy, holy. Is unlike anything we have ever experienced. Is unlike anything else. Lord, I pray that. As we approach your word today, we approach it knowing that it was, th- these are your words, these are your holy words, these are your perfect words. These are words that are not given to us by mere men, fallible men, but are given by you being infallible, being perfect, being all-knowing, being omniscient, being, being God. Father, I pray as we get to look at your word today, that we would rest knowing who you are, knowing the relationship that we have with you because of your son and knowing the hope that that gives us as we walk through this life. Lord, just be with us now in your son's name. Amen. I would encourage you to turn uh, to Romans chapter 8. That's where we are going to be this morning. I hate to admit it, but we love to define ourselves by what we are against. And even more than that, we love to define ourselves and make sure that everyone knows what we stand for. I would say about the easiest way to offend any of you is to assume that you stand for something that you actually don't stand for. Here's what's interesting as we consider all the party lines that we like to place ourselves in, as we consider all of the arguments that we are for and against, all those things that we love to define ourselves by, there's one thing in this earth that unites us all. I could say it this way. There's one thing that CNN and MSNBC and Fox News and Sky News Max, whatever that other one is, they all agree on. Every person in this room, regardless of whatever lines you draw for yourselves, how you define yourself, there's one thing that everyone in this room agrees on and one thing that everything, everyone in this world agrees with, that is their suffering. Just think about it. Every news channel out there, they might have a different solution for it, but what they all point to is Suffering. That's what we have to stand back and go, what unites all of us, every tribe, tongue, and nation, believer or unbeliever, is that there is an acknowledgement of suffering. Well, that leads us to the misunderstood passage that I want to look at this morning. Romans chapter 8, a passage that Christians have latched on to as comfort. But I fear some have latched onto it and are and are expecting the wrong kind of comfort from it. And that is the very familiar and well-known verse of Romans 8 28. Now, truth be told, I memorize this in a different translation than ESV, so if I like stumble over this verse, I do know it. It's because I've got to like reorient how this translation goes. But here is what Romans 8:28 says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This has been, appropriately so, an undeniable source of comfort and hope to the many. In our pain, in our sorrow, in our suffering, we have turned to the promise that with God, all will be made right, all will be made good. But in a similar manner to other verses that we've studied and other topics that we've looked at and other topics that are to come, we at times have used this verse and have interpreted this verse, applied it, in a manner that might be a little different than what Paul was actually intending for this verse to be used by. It is a source of comfort, but it can also be a verse that leads to great despair. Why despair? Why despair? Because while Romans eight twenty eight is absolutely true, and while we can place a stake in it and stand there and say, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. There, I said it in whatever translation that is. What we have to acknowledge and what we have to admit is that that doesn't always happen this side of heaven. The best things don't always turn out for good. Our suffering isn't always replaced with with victory. The good guy doesn't always win. Justice doesn't always prevail in the end, and it doesn't always work out well for Christians. I mean, just think about the history. I mean, we can see from the very beginning, Christians dying for their faith. I mean, in Scripture itself, Acts now... Stephen, five or six, somewhere in there. Sorry, I didn't write it down. I mean, Stephen, the first martyr, days, weeks, months, I mean, very short time after Christ ascended to heaven is dying for the faith. We see that continue even to this day. We see, we see people thrown into prison for their faith. We see people persecuted for their faith. We see people that are marginalized for the faith. And so we have to then shape, we have to place all of that against this verse. And we know that to those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. And we have to say, does it really, work together for good because dying might not be good, right? Here's the thing. There can be this stigma in our Christian culture and in our Christian lives that we can think that once we're on God's side, all the troubles of this world drift away. There's this song that I sung as a child, probably you sung it as a child as well. It's like 80s on tap, so... Uh, it's, it's, the, it's the song, Christian song, Read Your Bible and Pray Every Day. Just for the kick of it, I googled it and found this YouTube version. It's like totally the 80s uh, Sunday school song. And it's a very simple song. I'm not going to sing it. But here's the premise. If you read your Bible and pray every day, you will grow, grow, grow. And if you don't read your Bible and pray every day, you will shrink, shrink shrink now that song could be stuck in your head and if you never heard that go google it it's a fun song what's the idea behind this the idea behind this is if you have god if you read the bible if you pray every day your life is going to get better your life is going to turn out good you're going to be able to conquer all of your struggles you're going to have victory in all these things your life is going to be a good life but then i said we have to consider the martyrs and the prisoners and the persecution. And then even what Jesus said. I mean, Jesus said in John 15, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So it's clear that the proper interpretation of Romans 20, of eight twenty eight cannot be that Christians will have all things on this earth turn out for good. Because if you're dying, if you're placed to a stake to burn, if your head is being chopped off, if you're all of those other ways that people are being persecuted, that's not good. So what's it mean? Well, as we've done for many of these verses, we have to back up and look at the greater context in which it is given to us and in. And the context that Romans 8:28 falls into is a larger context of Romans 8:18 8, through28. So I'm going to read that. We're going to unpack some things, and, and then we can we'll get back to Romans 828 and look at again, what does this verse actually mean. Romans 8:18 8, says this, "For I consider." For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. That hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience." What's the, what is the consistent theme that we see in this text? Well, the consistent theme that we see is groaning. And that word actually came up three times in this section. There's this groaning, we, there's this understanding, there's this acknowledgement of suffering. And what's interesting is I think if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that we don't have an appropriate view of suffering. As a church, we've isolated ourselves, and I mean that as a Western American church, we've isolated ourselves from any form of suffering. We strive to rid ourselves from suffering from our lives, and so we've created this atmosphere that when we suffer, we don't know what to do with it. We don't have a personal category for it. It's interesting, though, is that Paul has a category for suffering. Paul admits Suffering. And he doesn't admit suffering by muting it. He doesn't admit suffering by saying, get over it. He acknowledges the full weight of suffering. You see, he understands that if we're going to understand glory, if we're going to understand the beauty of heaven, if we're going to understand redemption, we have to also understand suffering. Notice in this text that suffering and glory are inextricably linked. One commentator says, you can't divorce suffering from glory. This is, he actually said this in 8.17. If I can ju- just read one more verse, he says, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Paul acknowledges the suffering and the glory that Christians live in. He does that with this first verse in, here in 8.18. You, you might say that 8.18 sets up this whole s- section here as understanding what this future glory is talking about. But just read again what 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. just want to stop. And as I said, we don't have a category for suffering, so I want to stop and acknowledge suffering happens. Suffering is in your life. Suffering is in this world. You might not suffer to the same extent as others have. You might suffer more than others have, but suffering is a real and valid thing. So often the way the church handles suffering is to say, get over it, move past it, go beyond it. We don't have a category for it. But Paul does not mute the weight of suffering here. He does not say those sufferings weren't actually sufferings. Those pains weren't actually pains. That sorrow wasn't actually sorrow. Rather, he compares the suffering that we go through here on earth. He takes the full weight of the suffering that that we go through here on earth and compares that with something far greater and says, listen, while this is painful here and now, while the sufferings that you go through is completely valid, when you compare that with the glory that is coming, you're going to understand that... It's incomparable. You're going to understand that while this is painful now, when you see the end, that's going to look like nothing. That doesn't say that this isn't painful now. Rather, he says when you set it in context to the hope of heaven, to the glories of heaven, to the holiness of God, to the perfection of what is to come, it is not even going to be worth comparing what you're going through now. I mean, consider that, whatever struggle you have right now. That pain that that you fear that no one can understand. That ache that you go to bed with thinking about and that you wake up knowing that's there. That weight that is on your shoulders, that longing that you wish it didn't have to be this way. I could start naming some things, but I don't necessarily want to, you know, hit a raw nerve. But that pain that you have, I know you have it because I have it. The, the pain that we're going through, the loss that's occurred, the, the disappointment and failure that we've experienced, the deep sorrow, that when we see the glory that is going to be revealed to us, when we stand before God in heaven and we join in with that chorus that the cherubim are singing, holy, 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 when we see the new heavens and new earth, when we get to rid our bodies of this sin and we get to have those glorified bodies, when we get there, what's Paul saying? The sufferings here aren't even worth comparing with the glories that are to be revealed. He's not saying, get over it. He's not saying, move on. He's not saying this isn't really bad. What he's saying is set it in proper context. In 2 Corinthians 4, he, he uh, returns to the, to the same subject and he, he words this um, idea like this. This is 2 Corinthians 4, 17. Here's how he describes our life. For this light, momentary affliction... Is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. For a moment, let's just remind ourselves about who we're dealing with here. This is Paul. He was thrown into prison. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was ostracized. He, he, he experienced far more persecution than any of us in this room have ever experienced. And he describes all of that, light and momentary affliction. Yes, it's affliction. Light and momentary affliction when it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So from the very beginning, we see that there's this link between suffering and glory. These two are inextricably linked. You cannot divorce them. You cannot separate them. So what are we going to do with it then? How do we carry this suffering and glory into this life? Well, we see this kind of in three ways, three groanings that we see from this passage. As I said, that was the main theme that's coming out of here, these groanings. We see in this passage three descriptions of groaning and glory. The first one we see is the creation groans. The second one we see is that the children of God groan. The third one we see is that the spirit groans. And what I want to do is quickly work through this passage with those three headings so that, again, we can get to Romans eight twenty eight, and I hope better understand the beauty of that text or just remind us all of the beauty of that text that we have. The creation groans. This comes from verses 20 through 22. For the creation was subjected to futility, to frustration, not not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been, here's that word, groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Immediately, Paul takes us back in our mind to Genesis 1 and 2, takes us back to remind ourselves that this world does not operate how it was created to operate. This world is not functioning how God intended it to function because sin exists. This world is not supposed to be fighting against us. It's not supposed to be hurting us. It's not supposed to be breaking us. It's not supposed to be killing us. We were were meant to live in this created or in this world having dominion over it and having a joyful time. And yet when we look at this creation... It is trying to kill us in every single possible way. We are fighting against it, and that is because of sin. If you look at Genesis 3, 17 through 19, God is very clear. The world is no longer going to operate as it was intended to operate because of you, Adam. It says this in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread till till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Imagine. The droughts that we are experiencing now was not intended by God. God. The floods that we are experiencing now is not intended by God. The heat wave is hot. I don't, like this summer, it is hot. This heat wave is not intended by God. I was looking at a heat map yesterday, like the entire U.S. is in the 90s. That's not intended by God. We're not supposed to fight against this creation. This is supposed to be a safe place for us. Just consider the garden before sin. Adam and Eve were walking around naked. You cannot be any more exposed than walking around naked. And they weren't fighting against creation. It was a safe place. Here we're constantly trying to shelter ourselves and protect ourselves from this created order. Because we know if we are completely exposed, we are going to die in this creation. Just think. That's not how it's supposed to be. And what it says here is that the creation is groaning to get back to how it's supposed to be. The comfort that we have here is that when we in our frustration look at the world that we exist in, we in our frustration as we're trying to put bread on our tables, we're trying to cultivate the land, we're trying to to live in in this world in peace, and we can't, can know this is not how it's supposed to be. But it's groaning until now. But it's groaning not thinking, oh, it's never going to get better. It's groaning understanding that there is hope, which takes us to our next one. Because we can see that there's suffering in the glory of the children of God. It says this in 23. And not only the creation, not only the creation is growing. No, no, we ourselves who have the first Fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. As a children of God, we groan waiting for the pain to be over. And why are we grown waiting for the pain to be over? Because we know this is not how it's supposed to be. So many other religions, all other religions, all other individuals are trying to figure out how to get around, how to get over, how to fix the suffering that we all live in. That's what we, again, what we all agree with. This is not how it's supposed to be. How, how can we get back to the, or how can we get to a utopia where everything can coexist? Well, we all agree that this is not how it's supposed to be. But as Christians, we get to say, listen, there's a day coming when the new heavens and new earth is, will arrive. When our sin will leave us. Where we, where we will be able to coexist in peace and rest. But notice the gift that God has given us. He's given us the first fruits of the Spirit. What are the first fruits? We're not really an um, agrarian culture anymore. I don't think any of us live off the land. Maybe you do. Maybe you're one of the lucky ones these days that have a self-sustaining garden in your backyard so you don't have to see that there's no broccoli in the grocery stores anymore. That was a surprise last night when I walked in. What Paul is writing to, he was writing to an agrarian culture. They understood the flow of seasons. They understood that when it came to be harvest time, there wasn't a lot of food in the storehouses because they lived based upon a year season. They stored up food for the entire year knowing this is going to have to last me 12 months until the first fruits, the first harvest comes again. And when that first harvest came, they would eat for the first time of fresh produce and vegetables. They would eat again their full knowing, ah, oh, this is finally, I'm tasting what this fresh fruit is like, what this fresh produce is like, what this, what this gift is like. And yet they knew this isn't the last of it. This is the first of it. I can't just live on the first fruits because I need the whole harvest. Rather, they go, this is the blessing of knowing more is coming. This past week, Amy and I were on vacation. where well, the whole family was, but, but um, Amy and I were on vacation. And, you know, one of the things that we like to do on vacation is pick something to binge watch. Because why not? We're on vacation. And the thing that we picked this particular year was some... I guess you call it reality TV, some glorious reality TV. Uh, Survivor, we picked an old show, like an old one. That's kind of how Amy and I roll. We pick something old and then binge watch it. Well, we we were binging some old Survivor, like back in the seasons of the 20s. I think it's still going. I don't know. haven't watched a a, a recent one. So Survivor, you guys all know the premise has been around forever. You put 30 people, or yeah, I think, I don't know. You put a group of people on an island, they got to last 39 days. Whoever's the last one wins. Well, there was one of these challenges that comes up that they have. One of these challenges was a reward challenge, and it was like 30 days in. So you have these individuals that have been on the survivor diet, which is basically a cup of rice for 30 days. They're hungry. And what they did was at the beginning of this challenge, the, the reward for the challenge was gonna be a pizza party. And you, listen, if I've only had a cup of rice for 30 days, I'm gonna want some pizza. But they started the challenge by passing around one slice of pizza for the nine people who were still left and said, Here, take a bite of the food. So you see these starving people just taking the biggest and yet smallest bite of pizza so that everyone can have a piece of pizza. And they're tasting this pizza, saying, Oh, this is what's coming if I win the challenge. That's not how the glory of God works. We don't have this challenge of the Christian life. If we make it to the end, then we can have the full glory of God. We don't approach the, the, uh, the hope of heaven in that same way. We get to taste the first fruits of the hope that we have in Christ, the first fruits of being adopted, justified, regenerated, having the Holy Spirit. We get to have that taste of heaven and have the 100% full confidence that the full weight of heaven Is coming. It would be as if we get to taste that first taste of pizza at the beginning of the challenge and live through that challenge, go through that challenge knowing, well, it's in the bag. The pizza party is waiting for me. That's what Paul is saying here. Listen, we who tasted the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly, waiting eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What are we groaning for? We're groaning over, Lord, how long until you vindicate your name? How long until you come and you rid us of this body of death? How long until the new heavens and the new earth come? That's a very different longing than, Lord, are you going to save me? It's rather, Lord, I know you will save me. I know the hope that I have. I know the rest that I have. I know the promise that I have. Lord, how long? And this is the hope that propels us. For in this hope, we were saved. What's the hope? That one day, we will stand before God, not in fear, not in judgment, but in the knowledge that we are good with him because of Christ the hope that we will stand before God and regardless of the garbage that is in our life because of our sin, that that will be justified by Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. And we will stand before him and know that we belong there because we are his sons. That's the hope that we have as his children. But we're waiting for it with patience. But guess what's happening while we're waiting for this with patience? Patience. It's the third groaning. It's the Spirit's groaning. I know for me, when I, when I was studying this, I was like, yeah, of course, the, the earth is groaning. We, we know that you know, the world is not operating as it should. Yes, we, we know that the earth is... is Sorrowful over the the disaster that it is, and then when you think about you know us groaning, yes, obviously we groan all the time. We know that this is not how our how our life, and how our bodies, how our world should be. We, you know, we were not created to be at enmity with God and have this sin inside of us. But then when you hear that the spirit is groaning, I honestly took a step back. I was like, what? The spirit's groaning. The spirit has the same emotions about all of this that that the that the creation has and that i have but that's exactly what it says likewise in the same manner the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray as we ought but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of god What is this, interceding? This word here means that he is pleading our case. He's speaking our behalf. He's making sure that God knows us and sees us. He's up there in heaven saying, God, remember your children. But even more than that, I think, is God, remember Ryan and what he is going through in the struggles that he has. He needs you. He is there. And, and this word groaning, too deep for words, this word groaning, it's the exact same word that's happened in the other two places. Here's what it means. An involuntary expression of great concern or stress or sigh or groan or groaning. Involuntary. Of, God, it, it, your, your creation should not be separated from you. Your, your son or your daughter should not be sinning against you, but they are. Your your child of God should not doubt you, but they are. Lord, help them. They're up there groaning on your behalf as your advocate. You know the most comforting words that you can offer to somebody who's suffering? You're not alone. I can stand next to you when you're suffering and say, I'm here with you. But then you go, yeah, you're here, but you're not here. You don't feel the weight. Or maybe even we can be suffering together in something. We can go, Yes, I understand that pain because I'm also living in it. But you can still separate yourself from me, you can still go through something that only you're going through. But what this truth declares to us is that those who are in Christ are never alone. Those who are in Christ are not living in this body of death, living under the misery of mankind, suffering through this life alone. Right now, that thing that's in your life, that pain, that aching of your soul, and you go, no one sees it, knows it, understands, even knows what to say. Right now, the Spirit is interceding for you, is groaning, has an involuntary expression of great concern and stress, and goes, Father, Do you see them? Help them? They need you. They need to understand that you are there. They need to feel your hope. They need to understand that there is a steadfast uh, anchor of hope that they have in Christ. Knowing the greater context, I want to go back to verse 28. And I want to go phrase by phrase quickly so that we can be done on time. And understand, apply these things to Romans 8, 28. Once again, we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And we know, do you know that the hope that you have in Christ is a sure thing. Do you know that? I think in Hebrews 6, 18 through 19, it says, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul. Do you know the hope that you have waiting for you in heaven cannot be taken from you? To those who love God. The thing that this verse declares to us is this is also a particular gift. Those who have been adopted as sons, that those whom have placed their faith in Christ, those who have been regenerated, those who have been justified, those who have been called, we'll get to I'm going to read that verse in a minute. Those who have been loved by God have this hope. There's a particularness in this offering. And it demonstrates the precise love that God has for us as his children. This isn't God saying, I'm going to love everyone every way. No, this is God loves you in a specific manner. And you can take this, generally speaking, he loves his children. He loves his church. He loves the body of Christ. But I think we can read this verse. And you can go, God loves Nick. God loves Damien. God loves Dave. Dave. God loves Danny to pick on my elders. God loves you. To those who love him. All things work together for good. Now I've just spent the entire sermon saying, but it doesn't always. It doesn't always work together for good. So how can this verse be true? How can we say that those who know God and are loved by God, all things work together for good? What we what we know is that we have to set that in proper context. Not necessarily here on this earth, but who cares what happens to us here on this earth? But it, it will work together for good for those who are in heaven. I think of the verse where Christ said, um, don't fear the one who can kill the body, but fear the one who can kill the body and the soul. Set your mind, set your heart, set your expectations on the one that is far more um, appropriate and necessary. Our hope is not set in this world. Our hope is set on Christ looking towards heaven. That's why Paul can say, yeah, the sufferings of this this world are not worth comparing to the glory that we will one day see and experience and live in to those who are called according to his purpose. God set out with one clear and definitive end to all that's going on here on earth. If you read scripture, there's one clear and definitive end. That is redemption, and what is accomplished by redemption is a life lived in communion, sinless communion in heaven with God for eternity. That's the hope that we get to rest in. Our world has thrown us some crazy curveballs the last couple of weeks, on top of the crazy curveballs it's thrown us the last decade, on top of the crazy curveballs that we've had for the last... 10,000 years. And those crazy curveballs can, can just get our heads spinning. Like, what's true? What's right? What's going to happen? Is there going to be persecution? Is there not going to be persecution? Are we going to win? Are we not going to win? What's going to happen? But as believers, we can set our teeth in. We can rest upon the fact knowing that redemption is a sure thing. And that regardless of how we go out of this world, regardless of whatever direction this world goes, regardless of all of the things that we're trying to work out for the good of this world, we know our end is sure. And that end is redemption in heaven. Just before I I read one more section, there's a um, quote that stood out to me this week by Stott. It says this, the burden of Paul's climax is the eternal security of God's people. The burden of his climax is the eternal security of God's people. On the account of the eternal unchangeability of God's purpose, which is itself due to the eternal steadfastness of God's love. Let's go all the way back to the the beginning of the sermon. What I start with? We want to make sure that people know what we stand for. And why do we stand for those things? Because we believe that that is what is best for us and what is best for this world. Maybe that's true. Maybe I pray some of the things that, that you hold to is what's best for this world and for yourselves, but maybe not. But here's what I do know God's security is a sure thing because he is, Stas says, he is unchangeable and he is steadfast. Here's what I want to do so as we close I want to read the rest of Romans 8. And I'm doing this for a couple of reasons. One, the most important words that I can say in a sermon is the word of God because it's unfallible, it's, it's perfect, it's what we need. So if you hear nothing else, hear the word of God. But hear this and, and, and just apply whatever struggles you have at the moment to this. I guarantee you hearing it, it will, this will be a moment of rest and peace for you just to know that God is in control and you can trust in him. I'm going to start with 28 again and through the end of the chapter. And we know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, justified. Who was raised? Who's at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? You can add in whatever you're struggling with at the moment to that list. Whatever pain you have, whatever fear, you can add that in. Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we turn to communion this morning, as we get to end every service with, we could apply that list to this table. You might say, but I've done too much, I've sinned too greatly. I've gone too far. Christ can't save me. And the answer to that is that's rubbish. Because God's love conquers all of that. There is nothing that God cannot save you from. And yet if you're approaching this table thinking, well, I don't need God's love or well i can hold that sin i can hold that idol i can hold that thing that i so dearly love in one hand and christ in the other and and take christ freely of it that's also confusing of things because this isn't christ saying you can add me to what to your life currently rather this is christ saying your life is broken This world is broken. Your sin is is devastating. Come to me and I will give you a new life. I will give you hope that you did not have. I will give you uh, grace that you do not deserve and you can once again have a relationship with me. That's, that's That's what the gospel says. If you're here today and you haven't placed your faith in Christ, if you're struggling to know what is is the gospel, what's going on here, I'm not so sure I believe Christ fully, I'm not so sure I'm ready to give up my sin in order to go fully to Christ, what we would ask is that you just let the elements pass you by because we don't want them to confuse you. We don't want this to be a moment of thinking, "I, I have to take this in order to fill Christ up inside of me. That's not what this table is all about. What this table is about is us as his children celebrating Knowing that our hope is surely, steadfastly, completely resting, not in us, but in Christ. Because where we were weak, where we were sinful, while we were broken, he was perfect. And so we take this celebrating that the life that we need, the death that we deserved is found in him. Let's pray and we can take this table together. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have in you. Thank you that we can look at the burdens of this world and as the song says, they can grow faintly dim because of your glorious grace. Thank you that we can be honest about the sufferings that we go through. We don't have to say it doesn't matter. We don't have to say it doesn't hurt. We don't have to say it's, it's um, not a difficult thing. Rather, we can look to the hope of heaven. We can look to the glory that is to be revealed to us and know that when we get to stand before you, we're going to look back at all of this and say, it was light and momentary suffering. Lord, for those in this room who are struggling at whether Christ is enough, struggling whether Christ is actually the sure hope that they need. Lord, I pray that you would you would show them that they can't make it on their own and that they need you. I pray that you would strengthen their faith in you and that they would let go of sin and shame and burdens and run to you knowing that you are a gracious father, a gracious savior who will accept them not because they bring anything to you, but because you have everything that they need. Father, I pray we as your children, as we take this table, that we would be filled up with the knowledge again that your life, death, burial, and resurrection are sufficient for us. Thank you for this time. In your son's name, amen.